We just thank you that we can gather under your means of grace. And Lord, that we can um, learn your word together and rejoice in our mutual salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can also come together and give you praise and that we one day know we'll be around your throne praising your name forever with the saints. And Lord, we ask that you would open the word to us, be our teacher, help us understand the things in 1 Corinthians so that we may not just be hearers of the word but also doers, that we'd be conformed more to the image of your Son and that we may be more fruitful in proclaiming your glorious gospel. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as you can see, we're in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 5, 5, and we're going to look at Paul's appeal and exhortation to the Corinthians. This whole section is about Paul longing to correct the Corinthians to follow him, to think like him, and to reject the false message that, in fact, they are above in the spiritual realm any ethical obligations as they believe the Bible. So that's the section we're going to be in. Let me give you just a reminder of the flow of 1 Corinthians. Sometimes it's helpful to uh, be reminded of kind of the flow of the book so that you can see the forest through the trees, so to speak. And so let me just show you the outline again. There are four major sections to the book. The first one is just the introduction. The second major section is actually where we are. That's chapter 1 through 620. And it's a response to the reports. Now, what reports? Remember in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul had these reports from Chloe's people that things weren't going well at Corinth. Okay, that's the, re- the reports he's responding to. So that's the section we're currently in. The third major section is in chapter 7 through 1612. That's a response to the letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul. And remember, that wasn't a letter that the Corinthians had written where they were asking their spiritual mentor slash apostle what he thought would be good for them, but rather it was a letter that they were challenging him and his authority because they thought, again, he was weak and unspiritual while they were spiritual and had great wisdom and Sophia, right? Power. Um, So that's the third section we'll be coming to eventually. Then the fourth section is just the concluding matters. Now, the reason I point this out is I want you to see we're in this second major section, but we're going to be bridging. There's two subparts to it. Part A was the division at Corinth. The division was the Corinthians dividing themselves against Paul and dividing themselves against one another. Remember, Paul says that some of you are saying that you're of Paul, some of say that you're of Apollos. And so what he's doing is he's having to say, no, we serve one Lord, we're just merely servants. So that was all about the division at Corinth. Now, the sub, next subpart is B, where we're going to be getting into the immorality and litigation. So because they rejected the gospel that came from Paul to a certain degree, they rejected his teaching, they rejected Paul, and therefore they were falling into immorality. So the sections are tied. If you, di- if you divorce yourself or divide yourself from Paul, you're going to be divorced from his teaching, and therefore you're going to fall into immorality. So my point is we're going to be going from section A to section B in the major section 2 here this morning. That's where we are. Okay, That's the flow of things in 1 Corinthians. Okay? So with that, let's get started into the first verse there in verse 14 through 15. Paul writes here to correct, not punish the Corinthians. He says, I do not write these things to shame you. Now, what things? Well, things where he was saying, how dare you basically act spiritual while me, the apostle, I'm the one who is shamed, hated by the world, but you who is actually rejecting core elements of the gospel, you're elevated in the world's eyes. 
Okay? And so that's what he had just written in the prior section. Well, he says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now notice, Paul's point isn't to shame, but it's to admonish. And I think we have a minor application here this morning that in our ministries and in church today, our goal as Christian ministers is also never to punish someone punitively with the object of just making them suffer. That's God's role at the end of the day. Our goal when we're dishing out church discipline, for instance, that's outlined in Matthew 18, it's always with a restorative function. So we do give punishment out, but the end game isn't the punishment itself, but rather the restorative element to it. And that's what he means by admonish. Paul didn't want to just beat up on them. He wanted them to change. That's the point. Something else I want to point out here is notice he says you have countless tutors. The term for tutors is pedagogos. That's where we get the English term pedagogy. Okay. Well, it's interesting, in the culture of the day, a a pedagogos was usually a slave that was entrusted by the father of the household and usually uh, probably in a wealthy household to oversee the children's behavior and to make sure they get to school on time, to make sure they're educated. He was the master over the children, as it were. But what's interesting is notice Paul says, you have countless tutors, yet you... You don't have many fathers, okay? Now, here's the imagery. The father is over the tutors, isn't he? Okay, because if the father doesn't like the pedagogos that he set for his children, he'll get another one, okay? Now, remember, Paul has no issue with the other tutors, mainly Apollos and and Peter and the other teachers. No, that's not the issue. He's fine with them. But what he's pointing out is who is ultimately responsible for the well-being of the Corinthian church? He is. And yet, they're taking issue with him. That's ironic. Now, he also says, again, you, yet you would, not, you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have become your father through the gospel. This in Christ Jesus, again, we, we've talked about this a lot. Anytime you see in the Lord or in Christ Jesus, it's what's called a dative. Okay? A dative, there's four major parts to the Greek speech. It's the nominative case, there's a genitive case, a dative case, and an accusative the dative is typically something with the indirect object. So you're in something, okay? Let's say Larry's kids, or Larry puts his kids in the closet. You're playing hide-and-seek. The In the closet would be the dative, okay? Well, if you're in Christ Jesus, that's what's called a dative of sphere, okay? So the point is this. There's only two spheres in the Bible. You're either in Satan, in the demonic realm, you're in the flesh, or you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? There's two spheres. So the point being is salvation only occurs in Christ Jesus. And the reason I point that out is sometimes people look at that as it's causative. No, it's the date of a sphere. If you are going to be saved, you have to be in Christ Jesus. He's the only way. So you have to be in his camp, okay? But notice it's through the gospel. And the reason I point this out is there's another preposition here, dia. And dia often has to do with the intermediate means by which salvation occurs. Okay, so what I want to show you is how neat this passage is. Christ Jesus is the formal cause to our salvation. He's the one who gave the plan before eternity. Our great God and Savior is the one who planned our salvation. Well, then he gives it to who? He gives it to Paul, who is like a father, isn't he? And he is, in some sense, the efficient cause of our salvation. He is the one 
who is preaching the gospel. So the formal cause comes from Christ Jesus. The efficient cause comes from the apostles. And the intermediate means by which it happens is through the gospel. That's what I'm pointing out. Okay, So the gospel is preached. And what does the gospel have to do with? The person and work of Jesus. Who he is and what he has done. And so therefore, that's why it's incumbent upon us to preach the gospel. How will they believe unless they are sent? And how will they... Uh, believe unless someone preaches, blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings. Good news, it says in Romans chapter 10. And that's why it's so important because the gospel is the intermediate means that is the instrument. It is the, the, the tool by which the sculptor uses to make his work. Is that clear? So that's how I think we see these prepositions function. So we see really in just these two pass, or two verses, we really see the whole plan of salvation in some sense laid out before us. Okay, you have Christ Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You have the apostle, you have the tutors, and you have the preaching of the gospel. Very neat indeed. So Paul says, follow me. He says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. Again, you're either in Christ or in the world, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So again, this isn't something new. Paul's been teaching this in all of the churches wherever he goes. This isn't a new message. It's, an, it's the old one that corresponds to the original gospel. It's, it's, there's only one gospel. Now, when he means by be imitators of me, he's linking himself back to 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 10. Let me just reiterate this. He says, For I think God has exhibited us, us apostles last of all. In other words, they were hated, right? But the Corinthians, they were loved. As men condemned to death... Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So notice what Paul says about him, himself and the other apostles. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. So you see that tremendous contrast? Those who are acting foolishly, those who are rejecting the gospel, in God's eyes I'm saying acting foolishly, they're actually elevated in the world's eyes. And they have elevated themselves, right? But yet the apostles and their message is foolishness to the world and to them. Okay, so there's this, this great contrast. We are weak, Paul says, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. So what Paul is saying is, if you want to be in the gospel, you have to be an imitator of me, and you're going to have to be therefore foolish. Remember, that foolish is, it, there's, it's ironic, isn't it? Because it's not true foolishness. It's foolishness in the world's eyes because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. So remember, at the last day, there's going to be this great reversal. When Christ comes back, the things that were foolish in the eyes of this world, namely the gospel, Christ, his apostles, you and me as Christians, we're going to be elevated and reign, and the wisdom will be seen by the rest of the world. But until that happens, it's regarded by foolishness. So that's the irony that he's playing on. So he's saying, if you want to follow the gospel, be imitators of me. You're going to have to be fools for Christ's sake. You're going to have to become weak, and you're going to have to become people without honor in the world's eyes. (laughs) That's not exactly a seeker-sensitive message, is it? (laughs) Right? That's what you have to do. Yeah, that's not what everybody wants at all. And notice he says, be imitators of me. And I think about as an application... Obviously, this is an apostle. He's a personal spokesman for Christ. He writes the very words of God. But let it be said also of us Christians who follow apostolic teaching that we can be the people, because we live lives that are obedient to Christ, we can say to our other fellow soldiers in the trenches, follow me. 
when we're discipling those who barely know Christ, they're brand new regenerates, may we be able to say to them because of our obedience, follow me, follow me. Not just my doctrine, but my deeds as well. That's what Paul was saying, and I think that hits me right here to say, you know what, I've got my creeds, but are they matched by my deeds? Okay, they have to be both. It's not either or, it's both and. I think that's a mini application that we have. Paul also says this very thing in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So again, where does the message come from? Uh, is Paul just a super spiritual guy? No, it comes from Christ and therefore by grace. Okay. Paul challenges his opponents. He's going to lay the gauntlet down on them. 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 21, he says, Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This portion that I have highlighted in red is difficult for scholars to interpret It says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. What's the distinction between the words and power? After all, friends, don't we have a gospel that contains words? Yes, we do. And the only way that anyone comes to faith is faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ, right? Romans 10, 17. But that's not Paul's point. Paul's point isn't talking about the words of the gospel. What he's talking about is the logos, the false notion of words that the Greeks and the Romans had within the Corinthian church. That is a boasting in their own rhetorical abilities, right? That they could speak so properly and with such eloquence that they could beat someone in a debate. That's what they were to boasting in. So their definition of logos is different than our understanding of logos, that is salvation through the word. You see what I'm saying? So when we're talking about logos here, definitionally, Paul is attacking their understanding of logos. That is Greek rhetoric. When he talks about power, so let me just show you. I think the way to understand this passage is this. He's rebuking those who are arrogant, okay? And he's saying, I'm going to come and judge you, and I don't really care about your words. What I care about is your power, okay? And again, the words that he's talking about, he's using the term logos, and their understanding of it is rhetoric. And Paul doesn't have it because Paul speaks just the mere words of the gospel, mere words in their eyes. Right, But yet the words of the gospel is actually power. Why is it power? That's dunamis, by the way. That's where we end up getting our term dynamite from. But power, it's powerful for two reasons. And the only two reasons that matter to Paul is this. What should your message be able to do if it has power and it's not just mere words? It should be able to convert, convert the lost, namely make people repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and it should be able to sanctify. That is, conform people to the image of of the sun. If it doesn't do those two things, it's worthless and it's mere rhetoric. And so the Corinthians were boasting in their rhetoric, but it had no power because it didn't have power to convert. Why? Because it wasn't the gospel. That's the problem. And so Paul is saying, I don't care about your mere words, your logos. I care about power. And that's what I'm going to judge you. And that's why it's a link back earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5. He says, in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words, Paul says. It wasn't in persuasive rhetoric or logos of human Sophia, remember that's what they were boasting in as well, but what in? In the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So again, this passage here is linking back to 1 Corinthians 2. Paul didn't speak in their understanding of Lagos, but with power because his message of the gospel converted the lost and it sanctified those who were in the kingdom. 
Okay, that's at the end of the day what matters. So Paul is throwing the gauntlet down. He says, you want to impress me when I come, you preach a message and give a message that converts the lost and sanctifies those who are in the kingdom, and then I won't judge you. But until you do that, I'm bringing a number nine can, (laughs) right? He's bringing big trouble for them, right? He's an apostle. So the ultimate question then, and just like any good movie or any good book, there's tension here in the book of 1 Corinthians. The plot is this. Will the Corinthians follow Paul or the culture? Paul, friends, is going to have to beat Corinth out of the Corinthians. That's what he's trying to do. He's pummeling them from each side, showing them it doesn't matter about your false understanding of Lagos. Your Sophia and understanding of wisdom doesn't matter. What matters is Christ and him crucified. So he's going to have to beat them, or that is Corinth, out of them so that they would believe in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5 once. Now we're making the leap into the next section, but it's linked to the previous section in that he has to have his authority upheld or believed by them so that they'll believe his message he says this is it actually he says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the gentiles that someone has his father's wife now this term for immorality most of you probably have heard this pornea and in the new testament by the way in the greco-roman world pornea where we get our term pornography is a term that specifically means linking oneself to a prostitute. But in the New Testament language and how it's used, it means sexual immorality in general, any deviation between one man, one woman in marriage. Okay, That's what pornea would indica- or be meaning in the New Testament. That's the idea. But what's interesting, now, friends, you and I, being Americans, even though our culture is in decay and no longer can we call ourselves a true Christian nation, and nor do we ever have a covenant with God. I'm not making that claim. But let's be honest. Our founding fathers were Christians. We had many people in our nation that went before us that were believers in Jesus Christ. And so we have momentum in our society, so much so that if someone cheats on their spouse today, it's frowned upon even by those who are unbelievers. It's just the general ethos of the age in America that if you cheat on your spouse... It's evil. That is not the case in this culture. So what I want you to do is switch your thinking. And can you imagine being in the Roman Greco world where the thinking was that that didn't matter? That was the idea in the age of that time. And if you were living in Corinth, it didn't matter if you cheated on your spouse. In fact, a common saying of the day was this. This is by Gordon Fee. It says, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Okay, So if you were cheating on your wife or your husband, it didn't matter. (laughs) Big deal. And see, the Corinthians, the issue is, and what Paul is pointing out here is, the sin that this man is engaged in by having his father's wife is so bad, not even these wicked Corinthians would do it. Okay, So these wicked Corinthians who say, yeah, it doesn't matter if we cheat on our wives or our husbands, right? They won't even do what this guy in the church did. That's how vile a sin he was committing. And so Paul is just astonished. Now, here's what's important. The reason why the Corinthians are accepting this man and they have not kicked him out is because they have a faulted view of being spiritual. To them, being spiritual means being elevated above the cares of this world and that it doesn't matter what you do in the body because the body's going to perish. So if you sin it up in the body, it doesn't matter. That's all going to perish. 
The body doesn't matter at all. We're completely above that being spiritual. And Paul has to say, no, no. If you're in Jesus Christ, there are ethical obligations to the gospel. And if you don't behold to that, you don't believe in the true gospel. Okay, he's beating Corinth out of the Corinthians. That's what he has to do. So verse 2, he has to continue. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So they are so arrogant because they believe they're spiritual. They don't need to be worrying about the ethical obligations of the gospel so much so that they won't even kick this man out. So what? So he's sinning in the flesh. That's going to perish anyway. So we don't care. That's how spiritual we are, Paul. And by the way, Paul, your rhetoric is weak. That This is the Corinthians saying this. Your rhetoric is weak, and we don't buy into this, uh, this faulted notion that your weak words are with any power. So that's the battle that's going on. Now, here, we have to ask the question, what accounts for the Corinthians' arrogance? Because it's been abused in, I think, a lot of Christian Bible studies probably. I've heard it myself and I've bought into it myself. And there's basically three different views for the Corinthians' arrogance. The first and most common view is that they know what's wrong. That is, the Corinthians know what they're doing is wrong, but they sin anyway. It's the notion that they've heard Paul clearly. They believe in his message. They just want to do what they want to do. But that's probably not the case. And the reason why is they have a faulted notion of being spiritual. So the second view is the view that I think is the best. The reason why they're arrogant is this. They believe that in Christ they have received the Spirit who has lifted them above the merely earthly. So all things are therefore lawful. Why? Because the, there's two, in Hellenistic thinking, you have the Spirit and you have the body. And the body is worthless. That's evil. Only the Demiurge created that. And that's going to perish. And so they took that into Christianity and therefore they said, it doesn't matter what we do in the body. We can eat, drink, be merry, uh, for tomorrow you die. We're spiritual. We've already have arrived and have all we want. Well, that's why Paul is to argue so fiercely in 1 Corinthians 15 that no, there's a resurrection that's going to come. God made everything even physically good. It was sure tainted by sin, but he's going to restore everything. So when you're in the body, what should you do? but be obedient to your Lord Jesus Christ so that you bring him glory. That's the idea. And so there's another guy, though. He had a, a scholar. He had a kind of an interesting take on this. I don't think he's right, but let me just throw it out there. Another view of why they became arrogant was this. Since all things they reasoned are new in Christ, it is irrelevant to whom the wife once belonged. In other words, this one scholar is saying what these Corinthians were believing was that everything was made new in Christ, and in some sense, that's true. But therefore, we had a clean slate. And so if I was married to my wife, Deb, that's really wiped away. Everything's new. It's a new ball game. We're starting over. The score is 0-0. Zero, zero. That's the idea. Well, no, of course, that's not what Paul is getting at at all. And I don't think that that's what the Corinthians were believing as well because their thought was that of the Hellenistic world, that the body didn't matter. So I think clearly number two is the best option. They believe that they didn't have to worry about what they did in the body. Now, let me show you evidence of that in chapter 6 that we're going to be coming to, and I'm going to be proving that my second view that I had there was correct. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13, Paul says this, all things are lawful for me. And by the way, that's a saying that they probably had. Okay, They probably believed literally that all things were lawful. Now here's two, two possible reasons. One, in some sense, friends, our sins, past, present, and future, yes, they're done away with in Christ. And so in some sense... The law is no longer binding on us in that we're going to be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. 1. 
But that doesn't mean that we can sin so that grace may abound, as Paul clearly points out in the book of Romans, right? But yet they didn't know that. They were wrestling with that. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is Paul had said that they were set free from the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law, namely what kind of foods you could eat and so forth. And so therefore they reasoned they were also set free from the moral law, which of course they're not. It's never okay to cheat on your husband or wife. It's never okay to fall into idolatry and other things like that. And so that's probably what's going on here. So he has to correct them. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food. Okay, probably what the reasoning is, remember, it's going to pass away. It's going to be gone, right? But God will do away with both of them, probably their reasoning. Yet, here comes Paul. Yet, the body, and this is the big thing, is not for immorality, but for what? But for the Lord. See, so if you're in the body, you're supposed to be glorifying the Lord, not sinning against him. And so the Corinthians' big problem was this. They negated the body. They said it doesn't matter. Now let me give you a quote from Gordon Fegas. He says it better than I can. Paul, in the message in the gospel that we see is this. There is no dichotomy between body and spirit that either indulges, that either indulges the body because it is irrelevant or punishes it so as to purify the spirit. So friends, the body, it's not that what we do in the body doesn't matter, but rather what we do in the body matters eternally. Why? Because we're to give glory to God wherever we are, whether we're in the spirit or in, in the body. Okay? So, friends, that's the issue. They had an over-realized eschatology. They believed that they had arrived in a spiritual sense so that the body no longer mattered. Paul is to say, no, you cannot sin while you're in the body. In fact, you have to bring glory to God even when you're still in the flesh. So Paul speaks now through the prophetic word, verses 3 through 4. Paul continues, it says, For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now the thing we have to wrestle with is this question here. Notice he says, though absent in body but present in spirit. We have to ask ourselves, in what way is Paul present? Okay, Paul is making a claim here that he's with them. Well, in what sense is Paul with them? He's physically, obviously, some distance from them. So in what way? And so there's been several different interpretations of this. Number one is it's like when you and I would say to somebody, well, you're in my thoughts, I'm thinking of you, it would be like our idiom, that Paul is with them in his thoughts and prayers. It's kind of that well-wishing type of idea. Well, I don't think that that's what's going on here at all because notice Paul right away, he says, as though I were present. Okay, just as I was present, that's how you should regard me. So in what sense is Paul present with them? Well, the second take is that Paul believes he is mystically present. The problem with that view is Paul is not a mystic. He doesn't believe in magic. He does not believe that magically he's somehow there. So in what sense does Paul, can Paul really say to the Corinthians, I'm there with you, and that it would be powerful to them and it should be powerful to us? Well, I think the clue that we see is here, when you are assembled. Okay? Remember Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in your midst. Okay? Well, who's preaching the word of Christ? Who's his personal spokesman? Well, Paul is. Paul is the personal spokesman for Christ, and therefore, when his letter is going to be read among the Corinthians, 
he in that sense is with them as their apostle. So the idea is this. This letter, of course, as Gordon Fee says, communicates his prophetic word to them on this matter. He probably therefore thinks of the reading of the letter in the gathered assembly as the tangible way in which the Spirit communicates his prophetic slash apostolic ministry in their midst. And that's exactly right. Um, in fact, we see more evidence of that when he says, I'm with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. Why? Because Paul is the, the letter carrier and the personal spokesman as an apostle of Christ himself. Okay, that's why. And so that's how Paul is present. Now, when we come to verse 5, realize at the beginning that this isn't here. It's, it's implied. This is in your New American Standard. It says, I have decided. That's implied. The reason why it's italicized is not originally in the Greek text. So it literally starts to deliver. But, of course, Paul is deciding to do that, to deliver such a one, that is the sinful one, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to focus in on, friends, here, is notice you have a for and you have a so that. Some people believe that there are two purposes behind which Paul, or be, behind what Paul is trying to do. First of all, he wants to hand this man over for the destruction of his flesh. They reason that's purpose one. The second purpose is that he wants his spirit to be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, But what I want to show you is grammatically, the, when we ask the question, are there two purposes, the answer is no. There's only one purpose, and here's why. This preposition, again, is ace in the Greek, and often the way Paul uses it, it's denoted with expected result. Okay, What's an expected result? If you play in the street, you're probably going to get hit by a car. Now, is your purpose in playing in the street to get hit by a car? No, it's I want to play baseball in the street. But the result of it, the likely result, if you play on Highway 100, is you're going to get hit. Okay, So it's not the purpose, but it's the expected result. Do you see the distinction? So Paul's purpose isn't that they'd be destroyed in the flesh. That's just the expected result of his punishment. But the purpose is seen in the hina, the so that. Remember, it's the purpose statement. Anytime you see a so that or an order that, then you have the purpose statement. The purpose of what Paul is doing is so that they would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a very important distinction. Paul is going to use the means of destroying this man's flesh. That's the expected result. But the reason why he's doing it is so that their spirit may be saved. It's for their salvation. It's so that this man would be saved. Now, what does it mean to be destroyed in the flesh? And that also raises some questions. Now, there's two possible takes on that. The first one is this. The first one is that the man will suffer and possibly die. Okay, so to be destroyed in the flesh would mean that this man is going to fall into some sort of illness or that he, in fact, the illness may even lead to death. Now, what scholars will do is they'll pick up on 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, where, remember, some had fallen asleep and even died, or that's what falling asleep means in the Bible, that they'd even died because they did not properly discern the body in the Lord's Supper. Okay, do you remember that? Well, here's the issue, and we're going to talk about that when we get to 1 Corinthians 11.30. The issue there is not that Paul is giving you a prescription of what will happen for all time. In other words, you sin as a believer, you're going to get sick and possibly die. But rather, he's merely describing, as an authoritative prophet of the Lord, an apostle, what happened to those who were abusing the Lord's Supper. In other words, he knew that that's the reason why they had died, but whether or not you and I die because of that, because of sin in our life, We'll never, we're never going to know that, okay? In other words, Paul's an apostle, 
That information was given to him, but that's not a general principle. If you sin, you may die. We're not necessarily told that anywhere else in the Bible. So we're going to wrestle with that. But that, to me, 1 Corinthians 11.30 in and of itself isn't likely. Now here's why. If you want the man to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, does it help to destroy him literally to the point where he dies? Well, then he's dying in unrepentant sin. How is that good for him? So again, the point is to be restorative. And so let me give you the more likely scenario, and it comes from Galatians 5.24. In fact, Larry, do you want to read Galatians 5.24? And what I want you to see here, friends, is the two elements again. You're either in the flesh or you're in the Lord. There's two different worlds to live in. And uh, we'll we'll listen and we'll talk about it. Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Yeah, and then go into verse 25 as well. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Yeah. So now, right in verses 24 through 25, you see again the two spheres of life. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, you're you're in his sphere, have crucified the flesh. So you have the camp of Christ and you have the camp of the flesh, the old way. And they've crucified the flesh, so that camp has been done. And then in verse 25, it says, if we live by the Spirit, that again is in Christ. Okay, so you have two different camps. You're either in the flesh or you're in the Spirit. And I think that that, that's what's going on here. In other words, the destruction of his flesh would indicate this. You have life in the flesh. That is the old life that's represented by the carnal man or woman. That is where we're thinking ungodly thoughts. We're rejecting Christ. We're living for the world. It's the old way of life. And then you have life in the Spirit. Okay, And that's life that's characterized by obedience to Christ, but of course brought about by his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, in the camp of Christ Jesus, for what? For good works, which God has prepared beforehand, remember, so before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. So why is it that we do good works? Well, God has prepared that beforehand, just like he prepared our salvation. We were elect unto good works. And so life in the Spirit is life that is consistent with salvation. And life in the flesh is life that's consistent with non-salvation. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to destroy that old way of life in you. I'm going to do that by casting you out of the confines of the godly, and you're going to live among the pagans. You're going to be like the prodigal son who had to be in the hog's trough. And it's going to dawn on you one day, by God's grace, I can't stand it anymore. I long for my brothers and sisters. I can't take it. And all of you know, friends, when you've engaged in sin as a true Christian, you can't take it. You just can't take it. You can't live in the mud puddle. You just you can't wait to get out and repent. I can't take it anymore. And that's exactly what he's going to... He's going to hand this man over to church discipline so that he may be saved, so that he would repent and continue persevering in the Lord. That is the object of what Paul is doing. So it's in that sense, friends, that his flesh is being destroyed. It's not that he wants the man to die. Otherwise, it's not restorative. He wants to crucify the old nature so that he would live for Christ. That's what I think is going on here. Okay? So with that, let me turn to our application and I'm going to give you just a one point. Now, Bob, again, what Bob is going to do is I'll be um, going through 1 Corinthians uh, three weeks in a row. 
and then he's going to be giving us applications through it. So I'll just be giving you one or two as we go, but he'll be giving you many more. But here's how I think the passage, um, what it says to us today, is this passage speaks to the church today by reminding us of the importance of both individual and corporate holiness. We must be a people who are so consumed for the name of our God and for the ultimate salvation of our brothers and sisters that we are willing to give church discipline. Friends, church discipline is something that is not often used today, but that's exactly what Paul did. Again, the destruction of the flesh so that the man in his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is when Jesus comes in judgment. Okay? And again, we have to also, I think this tells us as Christians, we have to be people that are willing also to take discipline from other believers or take admonishment and correction. Um, you know, it's interesting. If Brian McLaren admonished me, it wouldn't mean anything to me. Why? Well, because he's a heretic. But if Bob DeWay said, you know what, Eric, let me just challenge you on something, I'd listen. Why? Because I know he loves me. He loves me in Christ, and he has the gospel in my best interest in mind. That's why if he calls me, I'll actually answer. <laughs> and, and also you. But I, my point in all of you, I know you have my best. And so the same thing, should you, you should hold that to yourself to say, you know what, that Christian brother or sister has my best interest in mind. But that also tells us this, that you and I, in order to love the Lord our God with all our minds, all our hearts, all our souls, and also to love our neighbor as ourselves, that is our fellow brothers and sisters in, the, in Christ, we have to have their best interest in mind as well. And so when you're admonishing a brother or a sister, always remember that the ultimate goal is restorative. It's not to shame them, but rather to uphold them. And so we have to be careful how we say things. <laughs> you know, sometimes you hear people correct. I, I hear the way people correct other brothers and sisters, and it's not restorative. It's punitive. And we, remember, we want the best for one another. So if I see, and I don't, I hate to pick on you, Robert, because someday I'd like to be like you. <laughs> but my point being is I saw my brother Robert, the last thing I want to do is say, oh, you knucklehead, don't you, can't you understand that you're doing that wrong? <laughs> no, I want to be generous and good to him. Why? Because I love him. I want the best for him. So again, when we treat our brothers, our neighbors as ourselves, how would you like to be restored or admonished? Well, of course, gracefully. You'd like to be admonished and corrected gently. And that's how we should do that to one another. Now, saying this about church discipline, this, of course, stems from Matthew 18. That's where Jesus had taught about the fact that if a man sins against you, you bring his sin privately to him. And if he listens to you, then you've won a brother. But if he won't listen to you, you bring two or three, so that by two or three witnesses, everything will be established. It's the Old Testament principle of Deuteronomy 19.15, where you bring other witnesses. But the idea is that you don't shame a man or a woman in Christ any more than you have to, right? Why? Because this isn't about shame, it's about being restorative. And then, if they don't listen to you, then you have to bring them before the church. And why do you do that? so that their flesh, that is the old fleshly nature, will be crucified and put to death so that they may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've seen church discipline be meted out here a few times at Twin City Fellowship, and I have to say I was amazed by the fact that I've never seen it before. I've never seen church discipline meted out in any church I've ever been in. Now, I'm not that old, and I haven't been a Christian that long. But it's interesting, I've never seen it. 
Isn't that interesting? And so, friends, we're going to have to be the people, if we really love other Christians, we have to be a people that will usher out church discipline. And again, following the guidelines that we see in Matthew 18. Now, let me just show you, Gordon Fee has some guidelines as well that he sees in this text that we studied in 1 Corinthians. There are three important caveats with church discipline. First, he says, in this text, church discipline is not the affair of one or a few. Even though as an apostle... Paul, as an apostle, pronounced the sentence prophetically, the sin itself was known by all and had contaminated the whole. So the action was to be the affair of all. Second, the ultimate reason for such discipline is remedial, not judgmental. For such to take place, one needs an especially loving, redemptive community where the power of the Lord Jesus is a regular part of corporate life. Third, according to the rest of the passage, the problem was truly affecting the life of the whole community. Probably discipline of this kind should be reserved for such contaminating sins. Finally, the great problem with such discipline in most Christian communities in the Western world is that one can simply go down the street to another church. Not only does that say something about the fragmented condition of the church at large, but it also says something about those who would quickly welcome one who is under discipline in another community. And friends, I think that that's something else that we have to be careful of And I've just been thinking of this as an elder at Twin City Fellowship. I know of men that have been disciplined here, and I won't mention their names. Again, the issue isn't to shame them, but I know they went right away to another fellowship, and they were greeted wholeheartedly. And it's something that we maybe perhaps in the Christian community have to be better about is if someone's under the discipline of another fellowship for godly and legitimate reasons, not because they want the gospel preached in their church and the pastor doesn't want to preach the gospel, but if they literally are under church discipline, it's something that perhaps behooves us to look into. Why? Because we want to have a united front as the people of God so that people may be restored into salvation. That's the idea. Remember, the corporate nature of the body is a group of people who bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our ultimate goal, whether it be individually or corporately. We must purge the sin within and from without, you know, ourselves and in the community for our sake and for the sake of his name. Remember the third commandment says it's all about not taking the Lord's name in vain because taking the Lord's name in vain means we have taken upon ourselves the name that is above every name, the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and we have taken that up upon ourselves and lived in a way that's unworthy, okay? And so we ought not to do that corporately or individually, and that's why church discipline is so important. So with that, friends, I'll take your questions and your comments. Yeah, Tom. I've missed uh, quite a bit of your lessons lately. Okay. So you may have covered this. Um, my question has to do with the background of these Corinthian believers yeah. and whether or not Gnosticism was a part of their background, theological background, yeah. and what basis or what, how it affected their understanding of Christianity. Yeah, great question, Tom. I think there was the incipient form of Gnosticism present in that, again, it would be um, this demiurge, this god of the Old Testament He created all things. But the way he did it was he created it through what are called eons. And he had successive generations of eons that are really angels. And so he had one generation, they gave birth to another generation, they gave birth to another generation. By the way, this is Gnosticism, okay? And what one eon, finally, he created the world. And the reason why they believe that 
was to get God off the hook for what they perceived to be a completely evil, perverse, physical realm. And so in their mind, everything physical was evil. And so when they believed the gospel, what they believed was that they were completely set free of the physical because the physical is evil anyway. Why would God want anything to do with that? So Paul is now having to change their thinking and saying, no, it's not that physical is evil. It's that it's been tainted and distorted by sin. But God will one day restore everything physical. So whether you're home with the Lord or you're in the body, you're to be giving glory to Christ and glory to God. And so the body does matter. In fact, the body matters eternally, so much so that God will give us a resurrected body. So he's having to completely change the thinking. In fact, evidence of this is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember he says, how is it that some of you are saying that there is no resurrection? What he's saying is that you rascal Corinthians are saying that there's no such thing categorically as a resurrection. And then he says, well, if there's not a resurrection, that is, if that's not even a category, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we're the most pitied of all people and our faith is futile, right? But in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, ah, but God has raised him from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. So that's the idea. So that's why he has to launch into the, the dissertation about the resurrection because, again, there have these Gnostic tendencies that the body doesn't matter. So I think you're exactly right. I think that's an incipient form. Now, full-blown Gnosticism doesn't really come upon the scene until the second century, but the incipient ideas are there. Yep. Good question. Anyone else? Any thoughts? Or Oh, yeah, we got one in here. Well, I remember, Eric, when I first came here with a friend, there were two church disciplines that had happened, one right after the other. Yeah. And I thought, whoa, yeah. <laughs> we better get out of here. But, <laughs> but aside from that, I've been here when a couple people have left because of a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And I think what's not realized is that it really grieves the body because mm-hmm. when they left, I, I was really saddened because yeah. I thought, oh, Part of me is going away, know. you know, and it's, it doesn't need to be. And I yeah. wanted to reach out to them, but it was it was their choice to leave. But yeah. it hurts the body. Yeah, so it does. It absolutely, all. it does. Well said. Yeah, it it is painful. Yeah, Larry. You know, you just mentioned about uh, some of the things in the uh, corporate uh, body, and yeah. on. I think uh, you wanted me to read Galatians. I think oh, it was Galatians 5.13 uh, uh, or yeah. something like that. I didn't get a chance to read it, but yeah. it was one of those one another's each other's verses. Yeah. And I don't know if you ever did a study on all the one another's each other's verses on no. the corporate body life and how that would kind of figure into it. Because if we looked at those, if those are, in fact, binding, then that would be some something of a roadmap or guideline for a corporate body. Yeah. You know, the one another's each other's. Yeah, yeah, well said, yeah. It's funny, there's two errors in our culture today. One is that the emergent slash post-modern movement says you're saved corporately. And how are you saved? Well, it's corporately through good deeds because you're going to create the kingdom yourself. Well, then there's the false notion also that can be prevalent in certain circles where it's a Lone Ranger Christianity. I'll be out in my boat, I don't need any believers, and I'll worship God with my nine-and-a-half Johnson motor and my leeches on my line trolling for walleye, Right. And that's probably the error that I'd be most inclined to because I like to fish, right? But the point is, is we need one another. So we're saved individually through faith in Christ, but we're saved unto a body, a body of believers. And 
so yeah, this one another, each other, it's very important. None of us are saved to a lone ranger Christian condition. Yeah, yeah because it kind of takes you back to that Proverbs where it says, as iron sharpens iron, so yeah, another man sharpens, sharpens another. another. Exactly. However, I think the implication is is that when you put a sharp edge on it, sparks fly. Yeah, <laughs> very, I like that. Very well said. Yeah, and it's part of the means of grace. Fellowship is in Acts 240, uh, 241-242. One of the means of grace is fellowship. And that doesn't mean just going bowling together, but it means gathering together as a corporate body to do the things that we do, worship, study the scripture, and those sort of things. So fellowship is one of the means by grace which God has promised that he will in fact meet us. So yeah, well said. Oh, hey, Bob. Good to see you. <laughs> no, let's welcome though. Good to see you. Okay. Yeah, I got here late because I had a little mission down to Iowa the last couple of days. I'm going to mention about church discipline before yeah. I brought it up, and yep. you, we've seen it happen here. And the thing that I want to talk about is that since 1980, I think our first di- church discipline issue happened in like '83. I'm the only one left who's been an elder since day one here. So that tells you how old I am. (laughs) But anyhow, I remember the incidents when we had to do church discipline, and it universally somehow boiled down to a marriage issue, Hmm. right? And the most prevalent problem is when you have a Christian spouse married to a Christian spouse, and somebody decides, I'm tired of this, I'm ditching my husband or I'm ditching my wife, and I'm going to go find something more pleasant. Yeah. For no reason other than I made my decision, I want to go somewhere else. Yeah. And that's happened, that that's almost accounts for, not all of them, there was one other one hmm. where we had a Christian pervert coming to our oh. church. <laughs> oh, no. There is no such thing, by the way. <laughs> But this guy was coming to the church, and all he wanted to do was hit on all the women. And we finally told him, go. We yeah. just go. Get out of here. Don't come to church. We can't take this anymore. And yeah. In fact, uh, the, our former senior pastor and I sat down with him and said, maybe the best thing for you to do is be in a men's group. You can't be around women because yeah. you talk to them in a very suggestive and wicked way. But we've had all these other issues and I want to share with you a concept, all right? And uh, this concept is very, very important in order to preserve a marriage. And that is that marriage only lasts for this life. Okay? Remember Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven? Yeah. All right? Now, think about this conceptually. Is God's greatest purpose for us in this life to be happy no No. (laughs) right so the thing that derails these marriages and i've seen this for 30 some years now is someone gets in their mind they're not happy and then they decide that their happiness is more important than keeping their covenant before god wow and then so they start you know, pushing their husband away or pushing their wife away and then eventually looking around and they find somebody out here. Now with the Internet, they go out on the Internet and they find somebody. You know what? As a Christian, you don't have to be happy. 
You just have to be faithful to God because eternity goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It never ends. And in eternity we'll have joy and there won't be blemishes and there won't be people making us miserable and there won't be uh, kids that are rebellious and there won't be... I mean, if you think of all the things that makes life tough day by day by day, it's all going to go away, dear brothers and sisters. And I, I, I don't know... I'm no genius in this. I managed to stay married for 38 years, which, thank God for that. But I'll tell you, a lot, well, one of the greatest ways of dealing with the fact that you're going to have battles and it's not going to be happy day after day, and it is going to be difficult, and a lot of things are going to mess up whatever it is you're trying to do, is that being faithful to God with whom we have an eternal relationship is actually more important than me being happy at this moment. Wow. Amen. Wow. And because as a pastor, I can tell you from my heart, the one thing I really don't want to be doing is church discipline. Yeah. Why? Well, not because we don't want to obey God, because we, we do and we want to do what we have to do. But I don't want to see the situation arise where you have to. Right. I just, it's just, I don't want to see that happen. I don't want to see it to happen to anybody. I don't want to see your life to get messed up. I don't want to see your marriage to get messed up. I don't want to see uh, people uh, falling into a serious sin so much so that they're harming the body of Christ. I just don't want to see that happen. I don't want to see it for anybody. So, uh, uh, awesome. by the way, Eric, thank you. So anyhow, um, it just has one of our pastors here, my... I guess my, just speaking from my heart, if you're married to whom you're married to, stay that way. Mm-hmm. All right? And I, I've told people now, some people think this seems crass, but I said if you have an unhappy marriage, don't worry, the rapture will solve the problem. <laughs> 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 I don't that's know if right. that's a cheat. I don't think I'll write a book about that. But. <laughs> oh, that's great, Bob. Thanks, though, for that wisdom, though. <laughs> that's great. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, you made it through. Uh, it was a swamp to basement, wasn't it? Well, I spent the last two days down in Iowa. My Down in uh, northwest Iowa, they've got rain and rain and rain and rain. There was one town where they had 11 inches of the basements in the town were flooded. Some of them, they actually caved in, so the house is useless. Um, And so eventually it got to my mom, who's 80 years old and uh, almost blind. And so here she has a totally finished basement, beautiful finished basement, water just pouring in there. And so I went down there and spent two days shop backing up water. My brother Gary came from Sioux Falls, so there were two of us one day dumping water, dumping water, dumping water, dumping water. I'm telling you, I'm getting older. (laughs) 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 This is a better thing to do when you're 30. (laughs) But uh, uh, it won't quit coming in, even though it quit raining. There's clay. In Iowa, you have this black dirt, and then below the black dirt is clay. Hmm. And it's fantastic for growing corn. Because the water just can't go down. 
and the corn can always drive us. So when I was a kid, when we were on the farm, we had one year we got zero rain in either July or August, and we still got a corn crop. Wow, wow. But it's not good for basements. Yeah. (laughs) And so the water tables actually got up to the point where it's higher than the lowest part of the basement. And um, I called my mom last night after I got home, and she was – and she's she's going to be 81 this year. She's still down there sucking water up and dumping wow. it out. Wow. So you can pray for my mom. Yeah. And that's what I did the last two days. So. Wow. Well, well, I tell you, with that, we'll just um, let's everybody we, we get the goodies are going to be set out here, and we'll all uh, engage in that. And we'll see you upstairs for worship in the sermon.